Hello, and welcome to the ARC Audio Review, which like the name implies is the audio version of the ARC Review, which in turn is the digital written expansion of ARC books, where conversation about culture, literature, and ideas are a daily occurrence. I am your host, Snorra Abnalsson. This time, we're talking about relics. Okay, Google, define relic. Relic, an object surviving from an earlier time, especially one of historical interest. When I hear the word relic, my mind immediately wanders to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We all know the story. Harrison Ford plays an archaeology professor that has to kick some Nazi ass to prevent Hitler from getting his hands on the Lost Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is supposed to make Hitler's army invincible, so Indiana Jones teams up with his mentor's daughter and former lover, Marion Ravenwood, and together they overcome various obstacles and save the day. Hitler doesn't get the Ark of the Covenant, and everyone gets their face melted off. Except for our protagonists, who live happily ever after. Or something. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Raiders of the Lost Ark brings to our attention several features that are common to most relics. First of all, relics are old, sometimes like thousands of years old. The word comes from the Latin verb relinquere, leave behind or abandon. And a relic is something left behind, forgotten, and hidden away. Second, they are hard to find. You really have to work, and possibly fight, to get to them. And third, relics are not just any old junk we find lying around. They are things and objects from a different time that have some sort of power or influence today. Religious relics, like the remains of saints, are often supposed to have healing powers and other magical qualities. But not least... Raiders of the Lost Ark demonstrates that all relics are dusty things found in dusty places. Every single relic ever discovered has been in need of a powerful gust of air from the lungs of the discoverer. I promise you. Our very own Sherry Helberg has been on her own Indiana Jones-style scavenger hunt, traveling to distant and exotic places like Berlin and Stockholm in search of her own holy grails. My name is Sherry Hilberg. I'm a volunteer here at ARC, and I'm also a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley, but I'm based here in Copenhagen for this year. My dissertation is on comparative literature, and I'm writing specifically on representations of despair in literature and film uh, made by women, especially from the 60s and 70s. Like so many of us, Sherry is and has always been a bookworm. I've always loved books, I think like a lot of other people that study literature do, and part of that for me has to do with the the books themselves. So I always prefer to have the book in front of me if I'm reading rather than something that I can hold on to rather than having it say on the computer or in an ebook. And part of that I think has to do with not just having it in front of me when I'm reading it, but also books can be these kind of um, like su- a souvenir of your reading experience or something like that. So when you have all of your books in front of you, you can think about all of the things you've read. You can pick them up and hold them. And insofar as they are these material objects, they also have have some sort of meaning in that. So I think that for me, as I'm sure for a lot of other people that study literature, there's this real desire to accumulate books. And that has something to do maybe with 
being able to show all of the work that you put into <laughs> into reading. Um, these are all of the things I've read. But then there's also something, I think, kind of emotional or sentimental with it, too. Now, having recently started to write her dissertation, things have taken a turn for the worse. This desire to accumulate books has really spiraled out of control. <laughs> and I think it has something to do with the book's being kind of evidence of the knowledge or that you have or could um, can produce. I think that what I found in starting to write a dissertation, which is a very um, daunting process, that I really have the need to, or I've really been feeling the need to surround myself with all of the books that could possibly be relevant. And that's partially because you never, I never, I want to be able to have all of this knowledge that then I can show I have in the dissertation. But then I think it also has to do with um, feeling like there could be some sort of emotional inspiration or connection in the books. So, for example, I'm writing about a lot of these women authors, and I think there's something about having the books in front of me that they've written or being able to touch them or pick them up that I can find it kind of feel like I'm in conversation with them in a different way by just being able to hold on to the book. It's like I have a kind of connection. They're sitting there in the room. Um, yeah, Toby DeLewison is sitting in the room with me if I have this stack of books written by her. Um, or at least that, that, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> There's also a feeling that just having the books around somehow infects you with their content. Like you don't necessarily have to read them. You just have to have them around. But is it always easy to find the books you need or want? No. And it depends very much on the authors and getting books from, say, the library. It's not always the case that they'll be in stock. And then even I at least have this desire to own the book and have the book so that it's something that I don't have to give back in two weeks, whether that means that I can, that I can make my own notes in the margins and then have that forever. So one of the problems is, for example, one of the authors that I'm working on is Toby Dillewson, and she wrote a lot of books. Um, and in order to have new copies of all of the books that Toby Dillewson wrote, I would need a lot of money. So one of the places I've been exploring to try and find these books is the used bookstore or the antiquarian bookstore. These are really amazing places. And it's the kind of place that even from when I was a kid, you go into and they're kind of these magical places kind of out of Harry Potter or something like that, where you have these old leathery volumes and this amazing smell that probably is rot or something or mildew or something like that. But it's just that kind of the smell of an old book that's really amazing. And then very often these spaces are just completely full of books. Some of them are organized better than others. So you get these kind of piles of books tipping over. Um, that's really just amazing. These stores can be a treasure trove of books that can't be found anywhere else. And they each have their quirks and idiosyncrasies, winding staircases and unique collection, which means that you kind of have to visit them all. Every time that I go to a country that's or a place that might have books in the original language um, or books that I'm looking for, I tend to make a, a list of all of the antiquarian bookstores, say in Berlin or in Stockholm, um, and then with that, a list of all of the books that I'm hoping to find there. 
And maybe this is a little bit of a misinformed thing to do because very often antiquarian bookstores, they're not libraries. In a lot of cases, I think, when you're looking for say you decide, I want to find this one book in an antiquarian bookstore, there's not always a guarantee that you'll find it unless it's something incredibly canonical or incredibly popular. So for example, going to Berlin, there's no doubt that you can find in any antiquarian bookstore at least a few copies of the collected works of Goethe or many volumes of Hegel or something like that. That's never a problem. But for my dissertation and then also my own interest, I'm really interested in literature written by women. Most of the books on these lists that I've been making and taking with me have been books written by women. And almost every time that I've gone to an antiquarian bookstore in Berlin or in Stockholm or here in Denmark, I just come up short. I can't find anything written by the authors. Two authors in particular seem to be impossible to find. Um, the first one is Victoria Benedictson, who is a Swedish author who was working uh, at the end of the 19th century. And the other one is Una Kutzern, who was a German author working in the mid-20th century. And I haven't been able to find anything by either of these two. So I went to Stockholm uh, over the summer and went to so many different antiquarian bookstores looking for anything by Victoria Benedictson. I think I found I found one book, but that was it. And she wrote really a lot. So there, there should be more, um, or at least that's what I thought. And the same thing was the case with Una Kutzern when I went to Berlin recently. I went to one of the bigger ones there and actually talked to the bookseller there who who said that he would try to call his contacts <laughs> in the, the antiquarian network in Berlin and see if he could find something for me. And I went back a few days later and he couldn't find anything. Is Indiana Jones making the discovery of relics seem just a bit too easy? Maybe it's easier to find the mythical Ark of the Covenant than, say, From the Darkness by Victoria Benedictson and Dark Spring by Ulrika Zürn. I think of these authors together, even though they were living and writing almost 100 years apart, because both are very interested in similar themes. For example, in the position of the female author, um, in the position of the female subject more generally, and both are also very interested in mental illness. Both of these authors actually uh, committed suicide quite, quite gruesome ways. But one of the things that both of these books thematize is, as I'm saying, men mental illness, um, depression, anxiety, um, especially. And they raise the question of whether mental illness is some kind of disease or something that's, that's on the inside or whether it's actually a result of some kind of experience. Um, so the result of maybe sexual trauma in the case of CERN or the result of larger structures of oppression. Both attempt to represent these questions of gender difference and attempt to articulate this experience of powerlessness in the position of being a woman through these kind of shadowy, very abstract systems of representation. 
two uh, texts that I'm really interested in is um, one of them is a short story by Benedictine called From the Darkness. And another one is Una um, Concerns, Dark Spring. These texts use characters that seem more like symbols or more like figures than they are actually embodied characters. So in Una Concerns, Dark Spring, very few of the characters uh, have names. So the narrator, the first person narrator is nameless. Her mother and her father are sort of mother and father. And then the same kind of shadowy quality is there too in Benediction's short story from the darkness, where there's just a man and a woman sitting in a room. Um, the woman's name seems to be Nina, but the man is unnamed. And what I think happens in both of these stories is that this question of gender difference is represented in this really abstract way that by, say, not giving names to the characters or by only having a man and a woman in a room, it's a way of kind of symbolically enacting these structures of oppression, which occur in more dispersed forms in everyday life. Marginalized and nameless women in the shadows, are they still there? Can they be found and heard? I haven't been able to find these books anywhere. And as I've been looking for these books, I've been thinking or starting to feel like maybe there's some sort of connection between the shadowy register of these books, of these kind of abstract representations of gender difference, and to the fact that I can't really find these books anywhere. They seem to be hidden even in these, hidden in these shadowy places, um, or that maybe they've been forgotten. Looking for dusty things from another time that have been abandoned in dusty places. We have all the makings of Sherry Helberg and the raiders of the antiquarian bookshops. But what's the power that these stories in particular possess? These kinds of stories in women's literature in general tends to be pushed away for being either too autobiographical or for dealing with subjects that say, a lot of people say, just don't want to read or aren't very interested in. But I think think that there is a real power in these books and in going into these shadowy spaces um, and finding them. I think that these books offer the possibility to, say, go back to a time, go back to the end of the 19th century or the mid-20th century and see maybe because those works in a way speak to the certain ways that gender is working at that time period, but then they also, I think, speak to um, different kinds of structures of oppression that are still at work in society today. It's a common refrain, especially here in Scandinavia, that feminism is a thing of a past, that of the past, that feminism is a relic. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, we don't need feminism anymore. We're not living in the 1950s anymore. And for that reason, why, why do we need to keep rehashing these problems? Why do we have to read another story about an upset woman or something like that? But I do really think that there's something valuable in going back to these stories. And I think that these stories can speak to and shed light on things that are even that are still happening today in the literary world and, and outside of it, maybe. <laughs> well, there you have it. If anyone out there has copies of these books in the original language and wants to sell them, let us know, because the search is still going on. Thanks to Sherry for joining us. Don't forget to come by the store and also check out the next episode of the ARC Audio Book Club. Dire Nesta Mason from Kobohol Lesa joined Sarah, Gio, and Macon to discuss Kathy Acker's blood and guts in high school. That's all for now.